so as uh, promised in the schedule, tonight's talk is on a little-known teaching in Buddhism called the Four Noble Truths. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. Before I start, actually, I wanted to um, share some books. Um, and that is, the first one I wanted to share is actually written by our very own Philip Moffat. And it's a wonderful book written on the Four Noble Truths. And it's called Dancing with Life, Buddhist Insights for Finding Meaning and Joy in the Face of Suffering. And I was just telling him uh, in the teacher's office that when this book came out, I devoured it in a few sittings. I just couldn't stop. So if you're curious about the Four Noble Truth, th- uh, Truths and, and their application to daily life, I highly recommend this book. It's a lovely book. And I think it will be available on the last day uh, here. And maybe he'll sign it for you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, I'm in trouble. Another book I wanted to, to turn your attention to is a book uh, by Bhikkhu Analayo, and this one called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. And it's quite scholarly, but it's a lovely, lovely um, text on the Four Noble Truths in a lot of detail, in a lot of wonderful detail. So if you feel drawn, um, to, sorry, to understand the four sati, uh, the Satipatthanas, the four Satipatthanas, I think I said the four number two, the Satipatthanas that we've been covering this whole week. This book is really has been my Bible uh, for understanding the, the four Satipatthanas, the four foundations of mindfulness. And this book was an inspiration to our revered teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who uh, wrote this book, Mindfulness, inspired by the book by Bhikkhu Analaya. And this also is, is a wonderful, wonderful book. So I wanted to mention these because as we have covered um, the four foundations of mindfulness, the, the Satipatthana Sutta, um, this week, you might have more curiosity about learning about it. And sometimes people wonder, okay, where do I go? Where do I learn next? Well, these two books are great. And also if you're inspired um, to learn more about the Four Noble Truths, um, I recommend Philip's book. So, uh, with that, I wanted to share a little bit about the Four Noble Truths. And I really want to present them, if possible, tonight um, as the four things I know to be true. Um, years ago, when I started my practice, the four noble truths, they sounded so high and mighty, and what are these truths? And they sounded kind of intimidating. And as I've practiced more and more, um, and as I've become more intimate in my life, seeing them in my life, um, there are just truths that I know to be true, things that I know to be true kind of like, um, reminded, reminds me of the title of the book by Robert Fulgham that was um, popular many years ago, All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. So 
The Four Noble Truths are like that. All I need to know about them is just to look at my life, just to look at my life. I don't have to go very far. Just I just have to be awake and, and mindful in my life, and it just becomes all clear. It's all right there. So that's the perspective I like to share it with you tonight um, to, to, to make you also help you see them intimately. That's in our lives. It's not these four noble truths. But they are, they are ideas, they are, they are truths in our life to be reflected upon, to be seen and to be practiced, to, to, to become intimate with. They are not metaphysical truths to be believed, as we all know by now, and if we don't, we should know that in Buddhism there are no beliefs, there's nothing to believe Ehipasiko, come see for yourself. Come see for yourself, said the Buddha. Don't take anybody's word for granted. Just come see for yourself. Come see these four truths for yourself. The four noble truths are a, or maybe I would go as far as saying, the central teaching in Buddhism. And the Buddha said, I've taught one thing and only one thing, dukkha and the end of dukkha. The contemplation from the Satipatthana Sutta is actually quite simple. Um, And just to tell you where it fits, um, to give you some orientation, it's in the fourth Satipatthana, as we've been talking about all the four Satipatthanas in order, it is in the fourth Satipatthana, and there are many different contemplations in that Satipatthana. The last one is the Four Noble Truths. And this is how it's presented very simply in the Satipatthana Sutta. Here he knows as it really is. This is Dukkha. He knows as it really is. This is the arising of Dukkha. He knows as it really is. This is the cessation of Dukkha. She knows as it really is. This is the way leading to the cessation of Dukkha. So those are the four noble truths. In other words, they are, there is Dukkha. And with each noble truth, there is an action verb. There are not just statements. There is something to be done. So with the first one, Dukkha has to be understood. That's the, that's the noble truth of dukkha. Dukkha has to be understood. So there's an understanding that needs to be done. The second one, the origin of it has to be abandoned. And what is the origin of it? Craving. Craving has to be abandoned. That's the second noble truth. The third noble truth, its cessation has to be realized. And that is the tr- noble truth of re- liberation or freedom. So again, something needs to be done. The cessation has to be realized, that that realization needs to be done. And the fourth one, the path to its realization has to be developed. The path to, the, to this realization has to be developed. Again, there's a, there's a verb there, has to be developed. There's something to be done. And that is the noble eightfold path, which is what we've been doing all week, practicing all week. So the Four Noble Truths, as you notice, they're actually, each two are a pair, and they're tied. The first one, there is Dukkha, 
and there is a cause for dukkha. The third one, there is a cessation to dukkha, and there's a path to cessation of dukkha. You, you see the parallel? There's dukkha, there's a, there is a cessation of it, there is, a, I mean, there's a cause for dukkha, there's cessation of it, and there is a path. There's also a cause, there's a way it's accomplished. So there is something, there's a, there is a proclamation, and then, ah, what's the cause of it? How do you get there? Well, you get to dukkha from craving, you get to the end of dukkha from the Eightfold Path. Sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? I hope so. Okay, we're done. <laughs> Have a good night. <laughs> okay, maybe I'll say a little more. So, so if, the, the, if we only had the first and second noble truth, and that was the end of it, then Buddhism would be really pessimistic. It would be like, well, there's suffering, and there's cause of suffering, and good luck. Have a nice day. But aren't we glad it doesn't end there? Oh, goodness. Really, the good news is the third noble truth. There is a cessation of dukkha. And then it gets even better. There is a path. There is a recipe. We are told exactly what to do to get there. Joy. Yay. Tanesara Bhikkhu says... You've probably heard the rumor that life is suffering is Buddhism's first principle, the Buddha's first noble truth. It's a rumor with good credentials spread, spread by well-respected academics and Dharma teachers alike, but a rumor nonetheless. The truth about the noble truths is far more interesting. The Buddha taught four truths, not one about life. There is suffering. There is a cause for suffering. There is an end of suffering. And there is a path of practice that puts an end to suffering. These truths taken as a whole are far from pessimistic. They're a practical problem-solving approach. The way a doctor approaches an illness or a mechanic, a faulty engine. You identify a problem and look for its cause, then put an end to the problem by eliminating the cause. So it doesn't mean that all of our problems go away, that if we imagine the perfect life, we'll manifest it if we, if we practice. We, we all know that by now through the week of practice, that that's not how it happens. How it happens is that the waves will still be there, but we learn how to surf them. We learn how to surf them. The waves will still be in the ocean of our lives. There will still be waves. That's the first noble truth. There will be waves. That's just life. But we learn how to surf and maybe even enjoy surfing. Any surfers out there? Yeah, a couple. Great. So... There is a difference between pain and suffering. As many of you have reported in interviews, actually, many of you have seen it for yourself this week. Um, some of you have reported it in terms of physical pain, where you have developed a different relationship to the pain. It's still been there. It's still there. The pain is there. But it doesn't bother you anymore. You're not suffering from it. That, it's, that's it right there. 
There is the saying, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And I think John Kabat-Zinn said it first, but I'm not sure, unfortunately. But that's really the epitome, that pain, there will be pain in life, but we don't have to suffer. There doesn't have to be suffering necessarily with the pain that there is in life. So, but the first noble truth, the first thing that I know to be true is that dukkha is a fact of life. So what do I mean by dukkha? How is it defined? Let's, let's get our definitions straight first to, to make sure we're talking about the same thing. So a very common translation for dukkha is suffering, but that seems kind of heavy for, for many types of dukkha that, I, that we experience every day. It's, it's a good word to be reserved for the serious suffering, the serious pain of loss and grief and the various um, problems, the various um, um, issues that we deal with in life. But there are other words that the Buddha was really referring to by using the word dukkha. Friction, stress. Stress is a good one in our daily life because we all have stress. We know what that is. Right there, that's dukkha. When you have a deadline, when, when something is due and you're sweating and like, how do I get it done? That's dukkha right there. Disharmony. When you're having an argument, that's dukkha. Uncomfortable, unsatisfactoriness. When something is just not quite satisfactory, that's dukkha. So when we say everything has dukkha nature, it doesn't mean that everything is suffering, but everything, everything is subject to unsatisfactoriness due to change. Because even things that we like and we appreciate and we want them to stay, because of change, they may go away, they will not stay the same. So the kind of dukkha that we'll experience in that case is is like rope burn. We're trying to, to hang on to a changing reality and it keeps changing and we're trying to hold on so hard and we get rope burn. It hurts that way. Bhukkha Bodhi says, the Pali word dukkha is often translated as suffering, but it means something deeper than pain and misery. It refers to a basic unsatisfactoriness running through our lives the lives of all but the enlightened. Sometimes this unsatisfactoriness erupts into the open as sorrow, grief, disappointment, or despair. But usually it hovers at the edge of our awareness as a vague, unlocalized sense that things are never quite perfect, never fully adequate to our expectations of what they should be. Anyone experience that? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's the human condition. About dukkha, David Loy, a Buddhist philosopher, says, although dukkha is usually translated as suffering, that is too narrow. The point of dukkha is that even those who are wealthy and healthy experience a basic dissatisfaction, a dis-ease, which continually festers, that we find life dissatisfactory, one damn problem after another, 
is not accidental because it is the nature of the unawakened sense of self to be bothered about something. There is a Josephism. Joseph Goldstein has these lovely one-liners. So one of his one-liners is, if it's not one thing, it's another. And that's dukkha. If it's not one thing, it's another. We're always finding one damn thing to be bothered about. So dukkha doesn't just refer to big, huge things in life. And I want to make that very clear, which is why I'm spending time with it. But small inconveniences of life are also dukkha. Lee Brasington, who's a Dharma teacher, he has a suggestion of using a slang word. It's somewhat flippant, but I want to share it with you because I think it captures dukkha pretty well too, or one aspect of dukkha. He likes to use, he suggests using the word bummer. You know the word bummer? So in, if English is not your first language, a thing is anno- if, if a thing is annoying or disappointing, it's a bummer. Like, oh, that party was a real bummer. Or you lost your wallet, bummer. Like, <laughs> that's dukkha. It, inconveniences our life. We don't recognize them as dukkha, but they're all dukkha. You get to lunch a little late, and the cookies are all gone. <laughs> Bummer. You wanted to have a good sit. Ooh, guess what happened? Bummer. You wanted something. You didn't get it. You got something else instead. Bummer. So dukkha really covers a, a wide range of, of experiences in life. And it helps us to really see the, 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 the small inconveniences. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Bummer. There is traffic. Bummer. <laughs> All of these. To recognize them. And it, it's so important to actually recognize these experiences, that these are dukkha. It's everywhere. Dukkha really is everywhere. And it helps to recognize it so that we can work with it. We don't think that it's something wrong with, with us or, or if we're in the midst of an issue or, or upset. It helps to recognize, ah, this is dukkha. This is suffering. This is disappointment. This is a bummer. Whatever it is, it helps to recognize it, to know, to know it. A couple of other things I wanted to, to offer both to, for consideration is, is again, in terms of how, um, how pervasive it is, Francis Story offers some pairs of words, which I really like, besides the usual anguish and anxiety and injury and sickness and aging, you know, the usual. She also offers pleasure slash pain, because pleasure, there could be... a a sense of when it goes away, there's dukkha there. Longing slash aimlessness. There is, there is dukkha in longing and wanting and also in aimlessness. Hope slash hopelessness. Striving slash repression. Love slash lovelessness. They both have their own dukkha. 
Here's one of my favorites, parenthood slash childlessness. They both have their own dukkha. Decision, indecisiveness, aversion slash attraction, desire slash frustration, deprivation slash excess. So dukkha is a fabric of human condition. It just is. We can't get away from it. And for me, this first noble truth, when I learned about it, it was so liberating, was so um, um, it made me happy to know that ah, I wasn't wrong. I wasn't doing something wrong. Um, so I was raised in Iran in a liberal Muslim family in a conventional theistic framework. You do good, you get rewarded, God looks favorably upon you in this life, and then when you die, you go to heaven. You know, kind of a pretty childlike, simplistic, theistic framework. Anybody else raised in that kind of framework? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty simple, right? We, we, we get raised in that. So it's a very simple reward-punishment morality. It's pretty simple. So when... I was growing up um, in adulthood, young adulthood, when I was faced with one of my loved ones getting sick and, and then dying, um, a person who was truly good, my mind couldn't get it. I, I, I was confused. I was really thrown for a loop. And the sense, there was a sense of betrayal. It's not supposed to happen this way. Young people aren't supposed to get sick. They're not supposed to, be, to die. H how could this be? This is wrong. It, it's not supposed to happen. Why me? Why him? Why us? There was a title of the book, Why, good things Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, years ago was popular. That really attracted my attention at the time because I was looking for answers why do bad things happen? It really, in, in the way I was brought up, it didn't make sense for bad things to happen. I was doing everything right. And at that point, I grappled with it for a long time in my 20s. And I came up with my own not-so-sophisticated version of understanding the First Noble Truth which was at the time based on, so, so there was this, this list of, of the interpretation of shit happens in different religions that was going around the internet. I, I don't know if any of you have seen that. I see yeah, nods. So a couple of examples from that was in Islam. If shit happens, it's the will of Allah. <laughs> in Catholicism, if shit happens, you deserve it. <laughs> the version... The version of Judaism was, why does this shit always happen to us? <laughs> so, so, my new philosophy was, shit happens. It just does. There is no reason for it, really. It just, it just happens. That's a part of life. Shit happens. Of course, had I learned, um, ha had I seen... Um, what Lee Brasington suggested, maybe I would come up with bummers happen. That, that sounds a little better than shit happens. But anyway, um, so 
So when I learned about the first noble truth, that was really, ah, it makes sense. It makes sense. It's not just me. It's the human condition. People get sick. People die. It's not like I did something wrong or he did something wrong or any of us. It's just life. It's just life. It happens. We never plan for divorces. We never plan for our loved ones dying. We don't plan to get illnesses. We don't plan exactly, on this day I'm going to have an accident and I'm going to be injured. We don't quite plan these things, but they happen. They happen to us. They happen to, happens, happen to everyone around us. It's just part of the fabric of life. So my point of view went from why me to why not me? Why not? Why not me? So uh, one way to contemplate the first noble truth is not that I am suffering and I want to end it. I, 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 I. The insight is there is suffering. This is a bummer. This is painful. Pain is like this. It's really seeing the pain, seeing the dukkha from the perspective of the Buddha, seeing the Dhamma from the perspective of the Buddha, seeing the truth of existence, this is suffering, this is dukkha, this is pain. And there is only one way to the end of suffering, and that is through it, through understanding it, through contemplating it, understanding it intimately, if we try to get away from it and wish it to be just, I don't see you, you don't exist, go away, go away, go away, that doesn't quite work. Have you noticed? It doesn't quite work. And dukkha is a tie that binds us all, rich and poor. regardless of our gender, body shape, type, class, education, race, we all have dukkha. And not to condone social conditions just as dukkha, because there are things that need to be changed in the society at large. And to know that all of us, regardless of our situation in life, we all experience dukkha. It's, it's the t- bond that ties us all in humanity. And that can open us to compassion, opens us up to compassion to others. There is a uh, YouTube video that I recommend you watch after the retreat. After the retreat. Don't look it up tonight. It's called, I'll tell you the name if you want to write it down and look it up after the retreat. I'll describe it. It's called Get Service. And I'll describe what, what it's about. So there's this young dude 
who uh, is wearing a suit and on his way to work. And he gets into his car in the morning. And first thing, there's this kid that runs in front of his car as he's backing up. There's this, this kid on, on rollers, on, on, on skates. And, and um, he gets upset and angry. And, and he just keeps driving and driving. And there are more cars and more people in front of him. And he's getting upset. And it just he sees everyone and everything in front of him as an obstacle. And he's really bummed. Bummers. So he's, he's having a lot of bummers that day. And then he gets to, to the parking lot of Starbucks and, and he sees a, an empty space and he's about to pull in and another car pulls in and he's upset. And, oh, you know the feeling, right? Anybody experienced that? Or I certainly have. Yeah, what a bummer. Somebody taking your parking spot, your parking spot. So he's all bummed out and he, he goes into the, the Starbucks and there's a line. And, and so you sort of hear in the background, he's like, oh a line great wonderful now i'm going to be late okay line all these people of course are obstacles and he finally gets into the front of the line and then this other guy cuts in front of him and says oh i want to add something to my latte and i want to add two cookies to my latte and he's like he's of course upset and he's not really really bummed out and he puts his order he goes and sits down and he's just looking around and all bummed out and thinking about oh i have to wait now and ah oh. And then this really cool dude starts walking towards him. There's a guy who's wearing dark shades and gives him a pair of glasses. And on the, contain on the container of the, the glasses, it says, get service. So he's unclear. Does it mean I'm going to get service if I put these glasses on? So he puts these glasses on and he starts looking around. He starts looking around at all the people in the coffee shop. And what happens with these glasses is that little phrases, little descriptions show up for, for various people. So um, the person who just cut in front of him in the line to add two cookies says um, he's out of a job and has two kids to feed. Um, another person, he sees <clears throat> a woman who's just sitting there and reading a novel. She has fear of intimacy, never been in a relationship. Um, and, and another person, you know, the, the, the barista who's bringing his coffee, he's dealing with addiction. He's really working hard on it. And he just keeps looking around and he sees all these people around. They all have these major, major dukkhas suffering that he had no idea. He, he, he can't bear it. He, he sees more and more and more. And he starts running out of the, the Starbucks and he runs into the woman who who uh, took his parking spot, and, and what he sees for her is just lost his best, her best friend to cancer. So he gets into the car, he's, he's driving, and again, he's looking at people. This guy can really need a ride. You know, he sees a person who has a, a broken down car, and he just keeps driving, and he sees people, humanity, in a different way. They're not obstacles anymore. They're all people with, with problems, with experiencing their first noble truth in their lives. He gets back, and he's about to take the glasses off because he just can't deal with it. And for one last moment, he sees the kid who got in front of his car in the morning, and the kid still is doing skateboarding around the neighborhood. And for him, he sees he just wants someone to care. And with that, he puts the glass and says, hey, buddy, you want to go and hang out? And uh, that's the end of that clip. 
I love that clip. We don't know the issues, the problems that each and every one of us, every single person in this room has. But we can be sure that we're in this boat together. All of us, it's the boat of humanity. You don't know the issues in my life, but you can be sure I have them. I have my share of of dukkha, as you have yours. It binds us together. And as you contemplate dukkha in your life, you don't need to go, go and look for it. You don't have to go and search for it. It's present in so many shapes and forms, in your body, in your thoughts, in your emotions, in your mind states, if you haven't noticed already on this retreat. You just need to be alert to recognize it for what it is. We're often in the midst of suffering without recognizing what it is. We blame ourselves, we blame others, without seeing, ah, this is dukkha. This is suffering, this anger, this is dukkha. Anger is like this, suffering is like this, grief is like this, it's like this. And contemplating dukkha not as an experiencer, but with awareness as a witness. Again, with the eyes of the Buddha, seeing the Dharma, seeing the reality of life. The second noble truth, what I know to be true about the cause of Dukkha. As Larry talked about it in his talk a few nights ago, his talk on on Vedana, unpleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. He also brought in the dependent origination teaching where there is contact in every moment. There is contact and following contact, there is always some Vedana. Our mind labels things as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And soon enough, the pleasant, unpleasant, they lead to tanha, to craving, to wanting the pleasant, wanted, 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 really wanted, or unpleasant, don't want it, make it go away, make it go away. That's also tanha. Both directions is tanha. And when you look at the cause of, of suffering, of dukkha, is because we always want something to be other than it is. It's always that contraction, is that clinging is that craving around what we want to be different. I had an experience of seeing this very clearly a few years ago. I was practicing at the forest refuge. My mind was pretty quiet. So things were easier to see than than usual. So one day after lunch, as I took my lunch and I was about to go outside and sit and eat my lunch, I saw there were some, some Donna chocolates uh, somebody had donated for the yogis. 
And I took a look and there was some 70% dark chocolate, which I like. So I took some and there were some C's candies, which I don't like as much as really dark chocolate. So I looked at that and I said, no, I think this, this suffices. So I went in and sat outside and I was eating and eating. And then the thought occurred to me, oh, there was some, some um, dark chocolate in that C's box, dark chocolate with almonds. That was contact. Maybe that would be nice, pleasant. So it went from pleasant to moments later, I was seeing loud and clear, dark chocolate with almonds. I want it, I want it. Quick, quick, go before somebody else gets it. Wow, where did that come from? It was painful. It was just this clinging, this, this, this contraction. Whoa, where did that come from? It was kind of funny. I was like, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. So the mind was quiet enough that I saw, okay, there was contact and oh, there was pleasant remembering that. And, and wow, look at this contraction, this pain of wanting, wanting. I mean, it was really painful. It was, I mean, literally. How did that happen? A moment ago, I thought, nah, I don't like these chocolate. And left next moment, I want it quickly, quickly. So I kind of sat with it, and I, I, I contemplated the, the, the Vedana under it and, and, and the clinging. And, and, and after a while, it, it, after some contemplation, actually seeing it clearly and actually just kind of being really wildly amused, like, whoa, where did that come from? Is that me? Is that this mind? I mean, hello? <laughs> um, it, it softened, and it went away. It, and, and then it was kind of funny, like, it was a storm that had just passed. So I walked in with, with, with ease, really with a lot of ease, and went and looked, and sure enough, that piece was gone, and I didn't care. There wasn't suffering. There, was, there wasn't craving anymore. But it was so interesting how quickly that developed. It, it's often like that. It's just that we don't see it, and we want something, and we suffer, and we really want it, and unless we have it, we're not going to be happy, and... And wah, wah, wah. That's how I felt. But anyway, that was pure tanha. Pure, pure tanha. Khalil Gibran in the Prophet says, When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, and you shall see in truth that you are weeping for that which has been your delight. And a lot of times, it's what gives us pleasure and is pleasant underneath that we want. We want, we want, and we're sorrowful when it's not there anymore. So when you're experiencing a bummer, look underneath. What are you hanging on to? What do you want to be different? That's a contemplation for the second noble truth. For the third noble truth, the end of dukkha, the noble truth of liberation. This really is the good news part. And the action verb, cessation has to be realized and the extinction of the origin of dukkha, craving. The craving has to be extinguished. In Samyutta Nikaya, The Buddha says, What now, bhikkhus, 
is the, no, is the noble truth of cessation of suffering. It is the cessation of craving without a trace of it left behind, the abandonment, abandonment of it, the renunciation of it, the liberation from it, the detachment from it. This, O monks, is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. This passage is really interesting. Pay attention. One is, one observation is that the renunciation of craving can be complete. The second one is, let's pay attention to the verbs the Buddha is using. Cessation, abandonment, renunciation, liberation, detachment. These are words that are not they don't connote forcible control. You don't extinguish dukkha. You don't extinguish it by a force of will. How do you do it? Ah, you let go. You detach. You soften. You open up. You let go. It's, it's, it's a softening and not a <clears throat> clenching over. Ajahn Chah says... Ajahn Chah, the, the, um, uh, the master in the uh, forest um, uh, lineage, in the Thai forest lineage, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect any praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So this freedom, this letting go, the cessation of suffering, it's not something that's huge and it just happens to others. Final liberation, in, in this tradition, there are four stages of liberation four stages of awakening. And it's important for us to hold it as an aspiration, as a possibility. And the first stage of liberation, which is stream entry in this tradition, it is possible. There are people in the West and in the East that have attained the first stage. I say that not to create a wanting mind, want, 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 but just to bring that aspiration. It is possible. It's not just for a selected few. Lay practitioners who are really dedicated can taste that level of freedom in their lives. So I think it's important to, to, to hear that it's more accessible than, oh, well, it was just in the time of the Buddha, and if you're just a monk and really, really dedicate your life. More liberation, more freedom in our very lives is possible, so take heart. Having more freedom, having more space, we can see that from our very own practice. I know that from my practice, I suffer less than I used to before. I still have a long way to go, but I know for me, I suffer less. Look into your own experience. See, as Look at the arc of your practice over however long it is. Or look over this past week, for example, when there are moments of more freedom, when you're letting go, 
when you're not so tight and contracted. Look at that freedom that is available to you in this very life and take heart, take inspiration from that. In your own very life, you can, you can really taste the third noble truth. Upandita says, the epitome of non-clinging is equanimity, which is not according, um, which is not insensitivity, indifference, or apathy. It is simply non-preferential. One does does not push aside the things one dislikes or grasps at the things one prefers. The way to bring about equanimity is wise attention, to be continually mindful from moment to moment without a break based on the intention to develop equanimity. And that ties in with the fourth noble truth, which is the path to the cessation of suffering, the noble eightfold path, which we have been practicing this week and I will talk about in a moment. So I wanted to share a brief um, story also from my own life where I experienced all the noble truths in one phone call. So this is a few weeks ago. I was here uh, at Spirit Rock and I was teaching a retreat. Actually, I was teaching a retreat on the Four Noble Truths. So So this is one little snippet of a talk. We spent a whole week exploring it. Um, on a retreat, and still it didn't seem like there was enough time. So So anyways, on this retreat, I was teaching, and I was calling my partner uh, one evening to check in. And um, recently, he's gotten very excited about athletic events. He's in good shape, and he had recently done a um, triathlon that he was very excited about, and he got a medal and everything. He did the whole thing, and I was very pleased proud of him and supported him. And then on this phone call, he told me, oh, next weekend, there is a swim from Alcatraz that he wanted to do, and he's in good swimming shape. So, and it turns out that uh, right now, the temperature in San Francisco Bay is the warmest it's been in 20, 25 years. So if, if anybody wants to swim, this is the time to swim in the bay. This is the time. It can be too cold otherwise. So I was really excited about this this event he had found that it was a swim from Alcatraz to the shore and a mile and a half, and it would be with centurions, people who have done it a hundred times or something. And Well, it turned out it was on a day where that afternoon we were going to a wedding of a friend of mine. And the last time he did an athletic event, he slept all afternoon. So as he tells me how excited he is about the swim, I'm thinking, well, I want you to be awake for the wedding. That's what I'm thinking in my mind. So, so I, I feel this tightness that, oh, I want you to be awake. I, I don't want you to be sleepy. So I want to support you. I mean, I want to be a supportive partner, but I, re- I, mean, I want you to be awake. So I, I share, well, I have a concern about you being tired that afternoon, which he, he, he takes. And then we talk a little more. And then the back of my mind, I'm... I'm reflecting and examining uh, my craving for him to be awake at the wedding of my friend. 
And I really want him to be a particular way, not for him. I want, want him to be a particular way for me. And I see that, and I see how I'm suffering, wanting, wanting him to bend to my will. And I think, okay, can I let go of that? Can I let go of wanting him to be a particular way? And I thought, actually, I can. What if he's not? What if he's a little sleepy? Big deal. So towards the end of the phone call, I told him, actually, you know, I can let go of my desire and my need to be, for you to be fully awake and I completely support you to do this swim from Alcatraz. And, and he was very excited and I was free. I, I felt so free. <sighs> Easy. So there was a whole no, the, the, all the noble truths in one phone call. There was suffering, that, that clinging, that oh, uncomfortable, one things to be a particular way, looking under it. There was this, this tanha, this craving of things to be a particular way. The third noble truth then was letting go, softening around it, using the tools of the fourth noble truth, which is mindfulness and right intention, etc., bringing all of those in. And so there it was in, in one phone call. And just to, um, to tell you that the, the humor in the situation was, so we go to the wedding, he's completely fully awake, he takes a nap, but he's awake during the wedding. And it turns out that I eat something that I happen to have food sensitivity to, and I'm exhausted and sleeping as well. <laughs> so I want us to leave early. So I think that was the poetic justice in the situation. So... If it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> so the fourth noble truth, the path to the cessation of dukkha, the path to freedom, the eightfold noble path, is really what we've been practicing this whole week. And that's a whole talk. It's, it's a lifelong practice in and of itself. So I'll just mention them briefly in this talk. Um, and, and point to how we might have been, how we've been practicing them. So there are three categories. There is panya, wisdom. There is sila, ethical conduct. And samadhi, which is mind and heart development. So in the category of panya, wisdom, there is wise view, wise view or wise understanding, which is seeing, which is seeing our experiences through the lens of the Dharma, through the lens of the Four Noble Truths, through the lens of the Three Characteristics, etc. And we've been developing that wise view this whole week. The second one is wise intention. And we've been working with that. We've, we've, we've had the wise intention to come here on retreat and align ourselves with our highest intention in our life. We've been touching into that wise intention every day as we walk we re revive our intention to be mindful, to sit, etc. We've been practicing wise speech, as, as Dory beautifully talked about it, in the way we talk to ourselves on this retreat, since we've been holding noble silence. We've been trying to speak to ourselves in our own minds in a wise way. And of course, to say that these are the practices that we're going to take home. These are lifelong practices. Why speech specially is, is um, if you just did why speech 
and you chose that as your main practice for a year, the rest of the Dharma would, would come alive because they're all related. The, 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 eight, the eight aspects of the Eightfold Path are all related. You, base, you have to use all of them to practice each of them. The fourth one, wise action. Again, this week we've been, we've been practicing wise action formally and informally, not killing, not stealing, not harming through sexual activity. Wise livelihood is number five. Traditionally, it means any livelihood that does not involve selling animal meat, poisons, intoxicants, weapons, and humans. And in a more general way, this past week, we've been applying ourselves, our lives, in this practice, in this wholesome practice, practicing wise livelihood. Number six, wise effort. Again, we've been applying wise effort, not over-efforting, not being too, too relaxed. And more formally, there are four wise efforts that I'll just mention, but won't tell you. So you go and look, look it up. What are the four wise efforts? Left as a question for the reader. Number seven, wise mindfulness. And of course, we've been practicing and we've been learning about the Satipatthana, the, the fa- four foundations of mindfulness. It's the whole theme of the retreat. Last and definitely not the least, wise concentration, unification of the mind, calming the mind. Practi- um, traditionally, they're defined as the four jhanas, but they're more generally, it's, it's developing samatha, samadhi, calming the mind, as you have been doing that with your breath, with your body, calming the mind so that you can investigate. And in fact, this is something that is also needed in daily life. As you're sitting here listening to this talk, you need a certain level of calmness of the mind, unification of the mind, so that you can follow my words. It's a skill. It's a wise skill that's needed in life in general, and especially cultivation of the path. So that was a very brief tour through the four noble truths, or the four truths I know to be true. And let's just sit together for a few minutes and let the words settle. From the Dhammapada, through many births, I have wandered on and on, searching for, but never finding, the builder of this house. To be born again and again is suffering. House builder, you are seen. You will not build a house again. All the rafters are broken. The rich pole is destroyed. The mind, gone to the unconstructed, has reached the end of craving.
Thank you for your wise attention. And the nine o'clock sit, there may or may not be another blessing chant tonight. So, who Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.